Brothers and sisters, we return again to 1 Kings, uh, the story of Elijah. And our text this morning is 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 41, into chapter 19, verse 3. And this is one of those places where, as you look at the Word of God, you realize that uh, uh, the chapter break uh, has been placed uh, truly in the wrong position because Verse 41 to 19.3 is one complete story, one complete episode, and that's how we're treating it today. So, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 41 to chapter 19, verse 3. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up and drink, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees, and he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, A little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garments and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, by this time tomorrow. But he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we would pray for a needed measure of your Holy Spirit to come humbly to your word and to find in it your truth and to see how it testifies of you, uh, your story of redemption, what we need to know as Christians, how we may honor you, give us believing hearts, Father, and may your word uh, bring about both comfort and perseverance in our lives as Christians. And this we would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice the title, The End of the Day, with reference to the end of the day, of the great challenge upon Mount Carmel. And then the rest of the title, From Triumph to Terror. What we're looking at now in this section is the aftermath of this story, which is really about the descent from Mount Carmel, which actually becomes a descent from triumph to terror. The big question as we come to this text Why would God work in and through Elijah's life this way? 
Now, before getting into this, I'd like us to review our, our guiding point of view in this series. We have the context here in Elijah's account, the story of Elijah, this section in 1 Kings. Uh, the context is paganism, pagan, paganism which has itself eclipsed uh, the life of the Israelites uh, during this time. But likewise, we need to recognize that paganism has eclipsed the influence of biblical truth in our age in Western culture and in many parts of what is commonly called Christianity. Even though that's the case, the call to all believers is to remain faithful, faithful to the mission of who we are and what we are called to do. Now, that's the overall basic point of view that we've been bringing to this series, the series which is about God, his people, and paganism. But then we've also supplied a second theme, a more focused theme, upon the particular passages that we've been looking at. And, and this particular theme has been opening up for us each of these episodes in the story of Elijah. Now, these stories which Elijah is the principal human character, but the main teaching is about God. And so we've stated this more focused theme in this manner. God does what he does with us, for us, and in us. And to us, in order to require of our faith that we believe and trust that God is everything that he claims to be on behalf of those he saves. And that I've added further for this week, never that his servants are everything we would want them to be. And it's never the case that our own stories meet our own yearnings and desires. Rather, as we come to the passage in the text, it's what we learn of God and his purposes. And to add to that, or his ways, that is of preeminent importance. It is what we learn of God and his ways that we can anchor our faith into that is of preeminent importance. Now, this aftermath story, this, this conclusion to the challenge on Mount Carmel is about the descent from Mount Carmel, a descent in which Elijah seems to be the principal character. It's a descent from triumph to terror. With a big question again, why does God work in and through Elijah's life this way? Now, I want to approach this passage along these three lines. The story we want, the story we get, and the story that we are promised. The story we want, the story we get, the story we are promised. And so consider first the story that we want. The ending to the challenge on Mount Carmel is not the story we want. It does not end the way we would wish. So let me recast the story to be a version of what we would want and what we would wish for. So, King Ahab, ruler of Israel, is a bad guy. He marries Jezebel. She's just as much a bad guy. She's an evil pagan princess. And together they spread the spiritual cancer of Baal worship, that paganism, all throughout the land of Israel. Now, wherever God's true prophets are found, they're killed. The light of the knowledge of the true God gets increasingly extinguished all throughout Israel. Darkness descends upon the people who once followed God. So, God acts. 
God sends his challenger, the prophet Elijah, to address the situation. Elijah confronts King Ahab. He pronounces a covenantal curse upon all of the land. There will be a drought that will not cease until he, Elijah, says so. And then he promptly disappears. No matter where King Ahab searches, Elijah cannot be found. Three years pass. Elijah reappears. In God's name, he challenges all of the pagan prophets. He challenges the 450 prophets of Baal. He challenges the 400 prophets of Asherah. The Baal prophets accept the challenge. The Asherah prophets do not make an appearance. Mount Carmel happens. It is God or Baal. It is life or death. Baal is silent. God answers with fire from heaven. Team Yahweh wins. Team Baal loses. All 450 members of Team Baal are judicially executed. The people cheer. Yahweh is God. Ahab seems stunned, subdued, silence. This isn't the outcome he expected. Perhaps he's been following the wrong God. Then Elijah prays for rain. The storm begins to come. Elijah's God has answered. And then Elijah has a foot race against Ahab's chariot back to Jezreel. It's, it's 20 miles. Elijah wins. He's first to the city. His winning arrival tells everyone in Jezreel that Baal has lost. Ahab arrives. He shares everything that has happened with Jezebel. Jezebel has a come-to-Jesus meeting. They repent with their Baal worship. They turn back to God. All Israel turns back to God. Ahab and Jezebel join Elijah's Bible study. They become godly rulers. Elijah starts a megachurch. Now, that's the story we want. We want the story that concludes the Mount Carmel challenge to be a winner. We want Elijah to be a winner. We want God to be a winner. We want the truth and the true faith to be winners. We want the sickness, sadness, and spiritual cancer of paganism, with all of its sexual perversions, to be the losers. We want the curse to be broken. We want the land to be healed. We want the righteous to prosper. We want the wicked to perish. We want the story to be different. The last thing we want is for Elijah to go from triumph to terror. Now, you and I want this story or some version of this story every time something tragic occurs in the lives of our families and friends and Christians and country and the missionaries we care for. We always want each and every potential tragedy to turn to glory. We want the cancer to be healed. We want the persecuted missionaries to be set free from prison. We want our Christian stories to end in triumph and glory. Now, the good side of this, the human condition longs for something good that will be truly good and that will truly last. We want permanence with what is truly good. We want all of our stories to end this way, and they all lived happily ever after. We want marriages that last, friendships that last, health that will last, jobs that will last, and growth in our retirement funds that will last. 
We long for the best things that human sin, the curse, and the fall have broken. But there's a bad side to this longing, a not-so-good side to this longing. And it can be stated this way. The problem is that our vision of what the story should be like, our vision for what is truly the best right now, is terribly flawed and terribly skewed. Think about something that happened between Jesus and Peter just after Peter confessed Christ, Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, after Peter confesses the greatest of all possible confessions that we can make about Jesus. Here's what happened. Matthew 16, 21 to 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, meaning Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter had his own version for the story of Christ. He was convinced that his version was right, and that Jesus had it wrong, that there must be some different ending, that what Jesus was forecasting could not possibly be the truth. Now, someone might say, well, yeah, but these were the disciples before the resurrection, before the Holy Spirit came to lead them into all truth. True. But doesn't that make it even more remarkable that you and I still hold on to the stories that we want? How we want things to turn out? How we think things ought to be? We have a hard time letting go of the story that we want. And time and again, we actually see how this plays out in the lives of Christians who cannot handle the story they want being the story they don't get. And it has done terrible things to their Christian faith and to their lives. Almost 30 years ago, uh, a woman who was part of a church in the canyon where I was pastoring handed me three issues of the recently published Skeptic magazine. And she said to me, my brother is Michael Shermer, who's the founder of Skeptic magazine. Now, I've actually heard Dr. Shermer's testimony of his deconversion out of the Christian faith to his skepticism, his Gnosticism, agnosticism, his practical atheism, because he lives as though God does not exist. You see, it happened during his college years at Pepperdine. Uh, Linda and Michael come out of an evangelical Christian family. And so, as Linda had told me about this, as I've actually read Shermer's story more than once, and actually listened to it in some programs, during his college years at Pepperdine, his Christian girlfriend was in a terrible accident that left her paralyzed. And for weeks and months afterwards, Shermer and all of the Christian friends and the church prayed that she would be healed, that she would walk again. 
but it didn't happen. The story they all wanted was not the story they got. And Shermer essentially concluded this way. If God would not answer this prayer, because surely if there was ever someone who deserved to be healed, it was this young lady who was his girlfriend. Because he spoke of the sterliness of her character. If there was anyone who ever deserved to be healed, it was surely this woman. And if God truly is merciful and kind and good and actually has the power to answer prayer, but he won't do this, then he probably doesn't exist. He certainly is not worth following. This year marks the 30th year of the publishing history of Skeptic Magazine. Dr. Shermer continues to promote a narrative that discredits the Christian faith. He left the faith because the story he so deeply wanted was not the story he got from God. And here's the point. If the story we want becomes the most important thing in our lives, we will find God disappointing. We will find our faith plummeting. In some cases, we will see the loss of faith altogether, or at least lost for a season within our lives. Now that brings us to think about the story we get. So let's actually turn to the story of Elijah, the actual story, the actual aftermath of the triumph of Mount Carmel. It's a story that can be described as this triumph that turns to terror. There are three distinct parts to the story in the text as we have it. The first part we can call triumphal announcement. It begins in verse 41. This is after the execution of the 450 prophets of Baal. Elijah says to King Ahab, time to eat and drink. That is, it's time to celebrate. The drought is over. This is the triumphal announcement. The drought is over. Nevertheless, like Ahab can have his little celebration, Elijah turns to God in prayer because God is still requiring this means of grace. So Elijah goes up to the top of Mount Carmel. He prays, as the text says, seven times before he sees the answer to his prayer, which is this little cloud the size of a man's fist rising from the Mediterranean Sea. But in that little cloud, God is telling Elijah a huge story. The end of the drought will not come in a gentle drizzle. It's going to be a torrential storm. So Elijah sends his servant to warn Ahab, time for you to leave the mountain, time for you to get into your chariot, time for you to ride as fast as you can the 20 miles to Jezreel. And if you don't, the rain is going to stop you. In verse 45, we see the great storm soon comes. The sky becomes black with clouds and wind and a great rain and Ahab rides to Jezreel. That's the first part of the story. The second part is the, after the triumphal announcement, is the triumphal return. Verses 41 to chapter 19, verse 1. So in verse 46, we read something there of great significance. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab, to the entrance of Jezreel. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the distance from this challenge place on Mount Carmel to the city of Jezreel, 
a distance across the valley of Jezreel, about 20 miles. And God puts Elijah into an almost marathon-length foot race against King Ahab's chariot. Under all normal circumstances, this would not be a contest. Ahab's chariot would win easily. But here we have the hand of God upon Elijah. Elijah arrives first. And I want you to think about the visual significance of what God is doing. The people in Jezreel who do not go to the showdown on Mount Carmel would look to the western sky. They would see the storm coming, and this would be their question. Is this Baal or is this Yahweh? Imagine the official watchers on the city walls. They see a strange sight. It is a supernatural sight. It is a man who's running faster than a chariot. He's coming across the valley of Jezreel. He's headed directly to the gates of the city. It's the prophet Elijah. He arrives first. And clearly, this is a supernatural happening. It can only mean one thing. The 450 prophets of Baal have failed. They have been defeated. The coming storm is from the hand of Yahweh, not Baal. Yahweh has won. Baal has been defeated. Now, it's unlikely that anyone who was on the mountain during the time of the challenge could possibly make it back to Jezreel before Elijah arrived. We're talking about a four to five hour trek on foot. Even if someone did, their story of the triumph of Yahweh would have proven true when Elijah reached the city, the city gates, in the supernatural way before the king, beating the king who's driving his chariot. Again, Baal has been defeated. Yahweh is the true God. Now, here is the significant observation we must make about the triumphal return. In all respects, Elijah's return in this fashion had one message and one principled intended audience, and that is Jezebel. Jezebel chose not to attend the challenge. Jezebel withheld her 400 Asherah prophets from participating. Nevertheless, God is proving to her beyond a shadow of a doubt that her pagan faith, her gods, have been defeated. If Baal is not truly the sky god who controls the weather, then Asherah, his wife, has no power either. Whether God has demonstrated that he, Yahweh, is the true God. And then we come to the third part of this passage, the final aftermath of the story, which we can title, The Terrorizing Message. And this is the part where we are surprised. This is where we are disappointed. This is not the outcome we would have desired. This is where Elijah's triumph turns to terror. Now, it's very fair to say about the text. It's very fair to suppose that Elijah may have expected a very different outcome than what actually happens. He might have expected that Ahab, having seen everything that happened, having seen the Baal prophets so thoroughly defeated, that he would have spoken to Jezebel with some kind of good and godly influence, something along the lines of, we need to stop this worship of Baal. We need to return to Yahweh. But look at the actual text that summarizes the conference that Ahab has with Jezebel in chapter 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel, 
all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Our first disappointment is with this message. It misses the mark of what actually happened. Ahab gives a paganized interpretation of all that has occurred on Mount Carmel. He credits or blames everything on Elijah. Yahweh, the true God, doesn't show up in Ahab's report. Ahab's focus is on Elijah. He credits Elijah for all of this power. He sees the man, not God, as the one to be reckoned with. Remember that before the challenge on Mount Carmel, Ahab had called Elijah the troubler of Israel. He still sees Elijah this way. What has happened on Mount Carmel has only caused Ahab to be more greatly impressed with the man, not with the God who's actually working through this man. And that leads to a very significant outcome. Jezebel does not really hear the truth about what happened on Mount Carmel. What she hears is that Ahab is greatly impressed with Elijah. And in her thinking, the threat to Baal worship isn't God. It's the man Elijah. He is the threat to their power. He is the threat to their pagan worship. Ahab's impressed with him. And therefore that explains what Jezebel does next. Verse 2. She sends Elijah a message. It's a 24-hour death threat notice. If Elijah isn't done, gone in 24 hours, she will have him killed. Now, we're not shown directly why she just didn't send men to kill him. Why warn him? Why give him the chance to escape? But it's reasonable to think that Jezebel knew her husband. It's reasonable for her to see how impressed Ahab was with Elijah and that killing Elijah outright might have caused serious issues between them. So better better to get Elijah to flee than to kill him outright. Because if Elijah is gone, Jezebel can do what she needs to do. She can accomplish what she needs to do to soften or to mute the influence that Elijah seems to have on Ahab. She needs to protect and strengthen Ahab in his devotion to Baal in case that devotion has begun to falter. In any case, Jezebel's message has all of the impact she desired. And this is where the story truly, the story we get is truly not the story we want. So we read verse 3, chapter 19. Then Elijah was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Elijah hears the message. He fears the message. He flees. This is not what we want in terms of how we might have written the story. We want Elijah to be a paragon of faith. We want him to stand firm. The last thing we want to see, the very thing that puzzles us, the very thing that seems to be a huge failure and almost a contradiction of faith is that Elijah is afraid of Jezebel, afraid of her death threat, fearful for his life, so that he runs away. Where's the spirit of Daniel? 
not afraid of the lion's den. Where is the courage of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who will face the fiery furnace? Come on, Elijah, be like David against Goliath. It's troubling to us that the hero of Mount Carmel, who faced down and defeated 400 pagan prophets in person, in the midst of all of their fearful and bloody rituals, would now be crushed by a woman who does not even show her faith, but who simply sends a messenger with her threat. We're troubled with this story. We're troubled with the story that we actually get in Scripture. Why does Elijah prove to be a coward at this point? But there's a more significant question. What is God doing in the story of Elijah such that God permits, even sovereignly ordains, that Elijah would experience this great lapse of faith? And that's the key question. And to find the answer, we must look to the story that we are promised. Now, listen carefully. The story that we get, and I'm talking about our lives, the story of our lives as Christians, the story we get must be understood in light of the story we are promised in Scripture. We must see our story, the story we actually get, not in light of the story we want, but in light of the story we are promised in the Word of God. And this means that the story of Elijah and the challenge on Mount Carmel is not ultimately or even primarily about Elijah. Elijah is not the central character of this story. It's not about Elijah's own personal power or ability that was in play. The true story was about the presence and power of God on Mount Carmel. And notice that on the mountain, the people there, all the people say, Yahweh, he is God. They see, at least for a moment, that it's all about God. But not Ahab. In his report back to Jezebel, it's apparent that Ahab has been impressed. He's focused on Elijah. He's focused on what he thinks is Elijah's power. He and Jezebel both think that the story is about Elijah. But to prove that this is not the case, Elijah falters and fails at this most critical point. He suffers a lapse of faith. He becomes afraid. He flees. Now, at this point, we must make the connection to the story that God has promised and how we are to connect the story that God has promised to the story that we get. Not to the story that we want, but to the story that God has promised. And here is the connection. We who are believers in the great story that has been promised to us, the great story of Christ, we are jars of clay. We are always jars of clay. And in this life, we will never go beyond being jars of clay. This is Paul's 
vital description of our place in the story of Christ. I'm referencing now 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5-11, through 11, where Paul writes, For we proclaim, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. But as Paul is saying, our story is not really about us. He goes on to say, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now, this is the most important connection and context for our stories as Christians. Our lives are to show that the gospel treasure we possess, the power that we live by, is not of ourselves, but that it belongs to God. It is not Elijah's power. The power belongs to God. And then Paul goes on to continue to describe how this story of ours connected to the story of Christ is a story of hardship, of challenges, of great difficulties. And so in verse 8 he says that we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Essentially saying to the Corinthians, saying to all of us, the Christian's life is often very, very hard. And we are not to be surprised that we have lives of suffering as we continue to live in this fallen world. And then Paul goes on to state God's purpose and how our stories connect to the story that he's promised in Christ, verses 10 and 11. For he writes, always speaking of Christians, carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. We are jars of clay in order to manifest the power of God in Christ in our stories, in the stories that we actually get. But here, listen to the Apostle Paul again, who puts this all into its proper perspective. Romans 8, 18, where he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory of that's going to be revealed in us. And so we must remember, we're God's children, but we suffer with Christ in order to be glorified with Christ. And the story that we get in this life is never happily ever after. The story we actually get is one in which we suffer, but we suffer with Christ with us. And it has that future promise attached to it. The story that is to come and the life to come. 
fellow heirs with Christ, sharing in his glory. So we need to stand firm in this truth that the present sufferings are not worth comparing to this future glory. Because our present story, the story we actually get, is not the final story. And Paul would say, it is a small thing compared to the ultimate great thing of our final story in Christ. So the story we want is not the story we get. The story we get is the one that's given to us by God. And in our own hearts and minds, we must keep that connection. That our connection must be not to the story we wish for, but the story we are promised in Christ. Always remembering for jars of clay and God's story of Christ. All we do must be for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Help us, almighty God, to have our eyes fixed on the one who is your son, even the Lord Jesus so that looking to him, we run our race with perseverance so that we might be able to say during the most significant occasions of our lives, when we are under testing and trial and suffering and disappointment and despair, that for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, that we would find as jars of clay that we have nothing in ourselves that enables us to do anything that we would do that's good but we would be able to say I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength that we would have the confidence that our God will supply all of our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus that we would believe most deeply. That it's Jesus Christ himself who will enable us to keep our faith throughout this life with our heart and minds fixed on things above where Jesus himself is, knowing that our lives are hidden in Christ. That when Christ appears, we too shall appear with him in glory. In his name, amen.